Hi everyone, welcome back to the Daily Gospel Exegesis podcast, where we have a go at doing an exegesis of the literal sense of the text. We look at the gospel reading that's read at today's Mass, and we give you the tools to understand what it meant in its original context by combining the best Catholic scholarship with the teaching of the Church. So today we have a really interesting feast in the Church's liturgical calendar. This is actually the newest official feast on the General Roman Lectionary. So this is called the Memorial of Mary, Mother of the Church. And the text we have today is an incredibly rich text theologically. There's a whole lot we could say about it. And uh, so today will be a, a longer episode as we try to dive into all the different verses here. Uh, But really, we'll only just be scratching the surface. So let's have a look at it. John chapter 19, verses 25 to 34. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary of Magdala. Seeing his mother and the disciple he loved standing near her, Jesus said to his mother, Woman, this is your son. Then to the disciple he said, This is your mother. And from that moment, the disciple made a place for her in his home. After this, Jesus knew that everything had now been completed. And to fulfill the scripture perfectly, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of vinegar stood there. So putting a sponge soaked in the vinegar on a hyssop stick, they held it up to his mouth. After Jesus had taken the vinegar, he said, It is accomplished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It was preparation day, and to prevent the bodies remaining on the cross during the Sabbath, since that Sabbath was a day of special solemnity, the Jews asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken away. Consequently, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with him, and then of the other. When they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead, and so instead of breaking his legs, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a lance, and immediately there came out blood and water. So what's the context here? Well, Jesus is being crucified, and if you want to hear the verses leading up to the ones that we get to today, you can hear those verses as bonus episodes of the podcast. Uh, because those verses are never actually read in small chunks in the lectionary. So if you want to hear an in-depth exegesis of verses 23 and 24 and those surrounding verses, you can get access to that through the Patreon page, and there is a link to that in the episode description. So verse 25, near the cross of Jesus. Now, even this phrase is interesting because the other gospel authors say that at the foot of the cross... Well, in fact, people weren't really at the foot of the cross at all. They were standing at a distance. Only John emphasizes that there are people standing at the foot of the cross. And scholars have pointed out that this is beginning to fulfill what Jesus said earlier in the gospel about when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said that in chapter 12. And it's interesting, isn't it? Now he's being lifted up from the earth and people are being drawn to the foot of the cross. And then we have a list of people who are at the foot of the cross. So it's his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary of Magdala. So let's start with his mother. So we know that she's called Mary, of course, although John doesn't call her by name. He only ever calls her uh, Jesus' mother. 
And in fact, the other gospel authors don't tell us that Mary, his mother, is at the foot of the cross, but John does, and that might indicate that John has a particularly special relationship with Mary, which we're going to see in this particular passage as well. So Mary, his mother, is at the foot of the cross as Jesus dies. And of course, this particular scene is uh, one that many Catholics would meditate on as part of the rosary, and there's a lot of Uh, spiritual things that can be drawn from this. So his mother is there at the foot of the cross watching him die. And this is, in a sense, a fulfillment of what was said at the start of Jesus' life. Remember when Mary brought Jesus into the temple shortly after he was born to be consecrated? There was a prophecy that was given to Mary at that time, and it says, a sword will pierce your own soul. And many people see this moment when she's watching her son die. This is, in a sense, a fulfillment of that prophecy, that a sword will pierce her soul. That's in Luke chapter 2, verse 35. So Mary is not named in John's gospel, and there could be a couple of different reasons for that. Maybe John, the author, is trying to avoid confusion with the other Marys because there are so many women called Mary in the gospels. It's a very common name at that time. So maybe in order to avoid confusion, he just calls her Jesus' mother. It's possible that John is also doing this for theological reasons. Maybe he's deliberately calling her Jesus' mother. And there might be uh, some theological motivations there. Maybe he wants to emphasize that Mary plays a symbolic role as the mother of the church. But that's just a theory. It's often very hard to reconstruct why gospel authors said particular things. And sometimes they're just best guesses. So also at the foot of the cross, we have his mother's sister, which is interesting. So here we learn that Mary had a sister. It's specifically said it's his mother's sister. Now, many believe that this, remember there's earlier passages in the gospels where it talks about the brothers of the Lord. Uh, So James and Joseph are two of Jesus' brothers. They're called his brothers in the gospels and they apparently live in Nazareth with Jesus' mother. Now, we're not 100% sure who exactly these people are. They're certainly not Jesus' own literal biological brothers because Mary didn't have other children. But many believe that those other so-called brethren of the Lord are in fact children of this woman who is Mary's sister. So basically, they would be Jesus' cousins. And that would make sense, actually, because Mary would live in Nazareth, probably her sister's living in Nazareth. And so it would make a lot of sense that Jesus would spend a lot of time with his cousins in Nazareth, and they would come to be known as his brethren. So I think that theory makes sense, because we know from this passage that Mary has a sister. And there's even more support for this as well. If you look at the parallel passage for what we're reading today, the other gospel authors describe one of the women at the foot of the cross as Mary, the mother of James the younger, and Joseph. So Matthew 27 verses 56 specifically says that one of the women at the foot of the cross is Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Now that James and Joseph are the people who are known as Jesus' brothers. Now, although Matthew's version doesn't identify that this Mary is Jesus' mother's sister, it does make sense. If we put the two gospels together, I think we have a very clear case that this other woman who is also called Mary is the sister of Jesus' mother, and she, this other Mary, is the mother of James and Joseph, the brethren of Jesus. So they're basically his cousins. Um, It might seem strange to us that Mary would have a sister called Mary, but that's sort of how they did it in that culture, particularly in large families. They would tend uh, to often use the same names. So Mary was a very common name in that culture. 
We also have another woman at the foot of the cross here, according to, Jesus, according to John, which is Mary, the wife of Clopas. Now, some people have suggested that perhaps this Mary, the wife of Clopas, is the other Mary that Matthew refers to, as in Mary, the wife of Clopas, is the mother of James and Joseph. That could also be true as well. Um, so, there is some confusion here about uh, which Mary maps on to which Mary. We have at least three Marys here at the foot of the cross. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary of Magdala. They're all definitely here, and it's possible that there's a fourth Mary. So, his mother's sister may well be called Mary as well. So, that you can see how it's very confusing, <laughs> and you've got to look at the text, um, you know, closely and see how they map onto other passages in Scripture. So, let's talk about Mary, the wife of Clopas. The fact that she's called the wife of Clopas indicates that Clopas would have been known to John's audience. Otherwise, there's no point in saying she's the wife of Clopas. Now, he's not mentioned in the Gospel of John, but it appears to be the same person who is mentioned in Luke's Gospel. He's one of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. If you remember that story, one of the disciples is called Cleopas, and it's probably the same person, uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas. So, Clopas or Cleopas is one of the early leaders of the Christian community, and his wife is here at the foot of the cross. We also have Mary of Magdala at the foot of the cross. So, Mary comes from a town called Magdala, which has actually been discovered now, and you can go and see Magdala today. She's mentioned earlier in the other Gospels as a woman who has had seven demons cast out of her. We don't know a whole lot about Mary of Magdalene. She's not necessarily a prostitute. The Gospels don't say that. It's just that she did have demons and they were cast out of her. But she is going to have a starring role in the coming chapters. After Jesus' uh, resurrection, she has a very prominent role in the Gospel of John. Apparently, there's some other women who are nearby as well. We know that Joanna is possibly nearby and possibly some other women too. So, we should not see, you know, the list of women that John describes as the only women. There's just certain ones that he has decided to focus on. Now, to understand the next part of this reading, we need to keep in mind the status of women in that society, and in fact, the status of women in ancient societies in general. Women without a male protector had little or no social standing and very few societal protections. So, it was important that women, particularly older women, uh, had a man in their life who could look after them. Women depended on males. That's how it worked in that society. And that would usually be the husband or an older son, to help them survive. So, we get to verse 26, and John says, seeing his mother and the disciple he loved. So, now we learn there's someone else at the foot of the cross. It's the disciple who Jesus loved. He's never identified by name in John's gospel, but he is present in all the important scenes in Jesus' ministry. This disciple whom Jesus loved keeps popping up. In our introduction to the Gospel of John, in that bonus episode I recorded about the Gospel of John, we talked about who this disciple probably is, and it seems overwhelmingly likely that this disciple whom Jesus loved is the author of the Gospel of John. So, that would probably be the Apostle John, John son of Zebedee. That would make good sense about why the author of the Gospel never names this disciple whom Jesus loved, because it's John himself, and I think that makes good sense. So, let's assume here that this disciple is John. So, he, Jesus from the cross sees his mother and John, and he says to his mother, woman. Now, we need to talk about this term woman, because to us in the 21st century, that sounds quite offensive, doesn't it? To call 
any girl, or particularly your mother, to call her woman, in that culture, it was not offensive. It was actually quite polite. It was equivalent to our madam. So if you can, I actually think this is a Bible fact that is really helpful if you can keep in mind. Woman in the New Testament is equivalent to our modern day madam. It's actually a term of respect. So he says to his mother, woman, this is your son. Or most translations would say, behold your son. Roughly what that means is from now on, he will be like a son to you. That's basically what he's said so far. And then he turns to the disciple and he says, this is your mother or behold your mother. And roughly that means treat her as your own mother. Now, it's not that the disciple, John, doesn't have a mother of his own, because we know from elsewhere in the Gospels that John does have a mother. In fact, she stars in a couple of scenes where she comes to Jesus. Uh, So John certainly has a mother. But rather, the point Jesus is making is he wants this disciple, John, to take care of Mary because Jesus is no longer going to be able to take care of Mary. He's going to die. So he wants to leave his mother in good hands. These are some of Jesus' final words from the cross. It's probably shortly after this that he, that he passes away. Why does Jesus give Mary to the disciple? What's going on here? There's one main reason, and that would be he wants his mother to be looked after after he's gone. That's the main reason why he sets up this arrangement where he gives Mary to John. There's another possible reason which might be involved here, which is that Jesus loves this disciple. He's called the beloved disciple. And he wants the disciple to experience the love of Mary. So he feels that uh, the beloved disciple would be a good match for Mary, for them to spend a lot of time together in the coming years, because he loves both Mary and the beloved disciple. So here the church sees an additional spiritual meaning. And many of you Catholics would have probably heard that at this moment, um, It's believed that not only did Jesus give Mary to the apostle, the beloved disciple, he also gives Mary to all Christians. It is at this moment that Mary becomes the mother of all Christians. And here's how the logic works for that. Since the beloved disciple represents all Christians to an extent, and in fact, probably that's a reason why John doesn't name the beloved disciple. He calls him just the beloved disciple. Maybe the point he wants to make is that this disciple represents all Christians because all Christians are beloved. Now, I think that makes sense, actually. So if we follow that logic, then if Mary is becoming the mother of the beloved disciple, and if the beloved disciple represents all Christians, well, then Mary, Jesus makes Mary the mother of all Christians. If that's right, then we can see this moment as Jesus completing his Christian family. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus talks about how in the Christian family, for Christians, Christ is our brother, God is our father, and now Mary is going to become our mother. That's one way of looking at why Jesus does this. And it's in this sense that at this moment when Mary becomes the mother of the church, she also becomes the new Eve. The church fathers often talk about how um, Jesus is the new Adam and Mary is the new Eve because Mary is, in quite a real sense, the mother of a new humanity, the church. She's the mother of a new group of people. Now, that is an interesting application because the church does actually see this moment uh, as when Jesus says to the beloved disciple, Behold your mother. The church does see this as the moment in which Mary becomes the mother of the church. Now, that's not actually there on the literal sense, is it? But John apparently discerns and the church discerns that 
there is also a deeper deeper spiritual thing going on in this moment. And that's important um, for the purposes of our podcast because we typically focus on the literal sense of the text. And in fact, the Catholic Church teaches that we have to start with the literal sense in order to understand uh, the texts of the Bible. But the church also doesn't rule out that there can be legitimate spiritual senses of the text. Sometimes Jesus says things and sometimes the gospel authors say things which also have a secondary spiritual meaning, which is legitimate. And this is one of these texts where the church says, yes, there is an additional spiritual meaning here. Uh, Mary is also becoming the mother of the church at this moment. We get to verse 27, and John here, the author says, from that moment, the disciple made a place for her in his home. Now, here we learn a couple of interesting things. If Jesus is giving Mary to the beloved disciple, it must be because her husband is dead. So Joseph must be dead by this point. Otherwise, there'd be no need for Jesus to arrange for Mary to be looked after. If you think about it, this also provides strong evidence that Jesus did not have brothers or sisters of his own. Otherwise, his brothers and sisters could have looked after Mary after Jesus is gone. In fact, in that culture, it was the responsibility of the eldest living son to look after the mother. That was actually the expectation. Since Jesus can no longer do this, he knows that he's about to die. If he had a brother, it would be natural for the brother to then become the person that looks after her. The fact that Jesus gives Mary to someone else strongly indicates that he has no brother. That actually makes sense, doesn't it? There would be no need for him to give Mary to John if he knew that Mary was going to be looked after by a different brother. In fact, it would actually be an insult for Jesus to make this arrangement if he did actually have brothers. The arrangement would not make sense and it would be quite insulting to his brothers. So I think that this is actually the strongest argument for the perpetual virginity of Mary. There's other arguments you can make, but I think this is the strongest biblical argument. This does seem to be evidence that Jesus does not have brothers or sisters of his own. Verse 27 continues, and here the Apostle John, notice that he says, from that moment, he made a place for her in his, in his home. So it indicates that the beloved disciple made preparations for this arrangement immediately. Possibly even that night, he went and received Mary into his home. Now that phrase, made a place for her in his home, it can actually be translated receive, which is interesting. And that word is often used to describe receiving heavenly realities. So um, earlier when Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's the same Greek word there. So something that when the beloved disciple here takes Mary into his home, it's also indicating that he's receiving a great and deep spiritual reality. Where is this home that he takes her into? That's disputed. There's different traditions about where exactly John and Mary lived for the rest of their life. It appears that they moved around a bit between Ephesus and Jerusalem. So they had multiple homes and they moved around. So we get to verse 28. After this, so after Jesus has spoken to John and his mother, now there's probably a bit of a break in time here. It probably doesn't happen straight after it, but certainly shortly after he's been speaking to Mary and John. Now we get to a time that the other Gospels tell us is 3 o'clock p.m. The other Gospels tell us that at this time there's darkness over the land and then Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So John doesn't include that phrase, so we'll analyze that phrase when we get to looking at the other Gospels. But John now tells us, knowing that all was now finished, 
So the Greek word here for finished is actually closely linked to another Greek word that means purpose. So they both can be translated as sort of end, knowing that everything was now ended, knowing that the purpose was accomplished. So basically Jesus knows that he's done what he needs to do. He's finished the work that needed to happen on the cross. The suffering has gone on for the length that it needs to happen. Notice that Jesus knows this. He's exercising supernatural knowledge here, even on the cross. He knows that what he's been sent to do is now accomplished. He knows the time has come for him to die. So what is this everything, knowing that all was now finished? Well, it's basically the Father's work of salvation. Jesus knows that it is now accomplished. He's done everything he needs to. Jesus said to fulfill the scripture. So John is going to tell us something that Jesus says here, which John realizes is Jesus deliberately fulfilling scripture. So John and the other gospel authors are constantly showing us how Jesus is the Messiah. He fulfills the prophecies about the Messiah. So Jesus says here, I thirst. Now, it's a simple enough statement, I thirst, but he's actually quoting here, apparently from Psalm 69, verse 21, which says this, They also gave me gall for my meat. In my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Notice the specificity of that. This is a messianic psalm, widely recognized as a a psalm about the Messiah, even before the time of Jesus. And it says that the Messiah is going to have vinegar to drink when he's thirsty. Well, that's exactly what happens here. There might also be echoes from another messianic psalm, Psalm 22, which mentions the Messiah will have a dry mouth. And in fact, Jesus will shortly quote from Psalm 22. So Jesus says this deliberately. He says, I thirst because he wants to fulfill this messianic prophecy. He intends to fulfill it. But probably also he's literally thirsty. He really does need a drink. One of the prominent effects of crucifixion was overpowering thirst because you lost a lot of body fluids through open wounds and perspiration. So he would actually be quite thirsty. Verse 29, a bowl full of vinegar stood there. The Greek word here says this is common wine. So vinegar or common wine. So the Romans apparently would have this common wine prepared for any crucifixion victim who was thirsty. Now, scholars differ about, is this the same wine that Jesus was offered earlier? So earlier on in the crucifixion, Jesus was offered vinegar mixed with gall, and that is a cheap Roman vinegar wine. And apparently that would have a drug mixed into it to dull the senses. So some scholars think that this is apparently a custom of the Romans to offer a a crucifixion victim uh, this kind of wine that has a special drug in it to dull the senses as a way of helping them endure the crucifixion. But a lot of other scholars scholars would say that doesn't really fit what we know about the Romans. Maybe by offering the crucifixion victim vinegar, it's just a way of mocking them because giving them a sour drink like this is just going to make them feel more thirsty. So it's a, a way of further mocking them. And I think that's probably the correct idea. So there is a question here about, is this the same drink Jesus was offered earlier? Because he did actually say no to this drink earlier. But here he accepts it. So possibly it's a different kind of wine that he accepts, or possibly he accepts the wine now, the vinegar, because he needs to speak. So he needs his tongue to have enough moisture in order to speak. So they put a sponge full of vinegar on hyssop. So Jesus is high above them. So they can't pour it directly into his mouth, so they probably put it on a pole of some sort. So they put this vinegar 
on a sponge and then they rest the sponge on hyssop. So hyssop is kind of like a dry shrub plant. Now, the other Gospels only tell us that it's a reed, but John tells us specifically that it's a hyssop plant. John thinks this is significant. Why is it significant that they give him vinegar on a hyssop plant? Well, hyssop was of extreme significance to the Jews because it would remind them of the first Passover night. At the first Passover, each household slew a perfect lamb and then they put the blood on the doorposts so that the death angel would pass over them. And this is what Moses tells the Israelites. He says, you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out the door until morning. So it was hyssop that they used to distribute the blood. So it was the blood of the Passover lamb mediated by the hyssop that saved the Israelites from death. And hyssop also played a key role in the cleansing ceremonies that involved the Israelites being cleansed from impurities. We see that in Leviticus 14 and Numbers 19. So if you put those two images together, think about what's going on here. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, is shedding his blood in order to save people, to bring people to God and to purify God's people, to allow them to dwell with him. So John knows that there's a significance to the fact that hyssop is used in this crucifixion. So they held the hyssop and the sponge to his mouth. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, now it's likely, think about it, if he didn't receive the vinegar, he might not have been able to say these next words. He wanted to say his final words and his parched lips and his throat needed moisture. So he accepts the vinegar now, even though he refused it earlier. So he takes some of the vinegar and he says, it is finished. So these are very famous words. In Greek, it's tetelestai. Now, a lot of Christians have taken this, certainly this is a phrase that's rich with meaning, it is finished. A lot of scholars have taken this to mean this is the moment at which the sin transaction has been completed. So they see this in kind of transactional terms. And certainly you can see it that way. But it could also just mean something like this. The suffering is finished. Because remember, Jesus knows now that he's uh, that he can die. He knows that whatever the work is that the Father has given him is now finished. So maybe it means something like taking on the sins of Israel and suffering in their place is now finished. Or maybe it means something like this. I have finished my mission and I have perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father. That would, last one would certainly fit with the context of John. He's come to do the will of God to bring salvation to people and it's now accomplished. It's finished. Now, there is another possible interesting interpretation here of these words, it is finished. So, all through the Gospel of John, there's this imagery that Jesus is making a new creation. And some scholars think the word here for finished is fairly similar to the word that's used for uh, rested on uh, in terms of the creation week. So, God created in six days and then he rested on the seventh. So maybe this is tapping into this kind of similar new creation language. So Jesus has been making the new creation through his ministry. And now perhaps when he says it is finished, maybe this is when he rests as he dies on the cross. On the cross, he can finally rest from the new creation he's been making. So that's a a kind of a cool interpretation as well. Uh, As is the case with most of the Gospel of John, there's all sorts of possible things that it could mean. And different scholars are able to draw out different themes. So at this point, according to the other Gospels, 
He then says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And then now John tells us, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Notice it's kind of voluntary. He gives up his spirit voluntarily. Jesus could have prolonged his life using supernatural power for as long as he wanted, but he's now finished the work that needs to happen. He knows that this is his moment to die, so he voluntarily gives up his life. There's a famous poem which says something along the lines of, uh, Jesus died on a cross of wood, and yet he made the hill on which it stood. So really, if you think about the significance of the fact that Jesus, the creator, voluntarily gives up his life on the cross, it's, it's quite profound. So at this point, Jesus dies. His soul separates from his body. So it's a very solemn moment. Jesus, the Messiah, dies. The other Gospels tell us that at this point, the curtain of the temple is torn. There's an earthquake. The tombs open. And then the centurion says, truly, this was the Son of God. So all of these things happen straight after Jesus dies. Jesus has just died on the cross at about 3 p.m. on Good Friday. And now we get to verse 31. It was preparation day. So this is the day before the Sabbath. And it's important to remind ourselves how the dating system or the time system works in that culture. So Jesus dies on a Friday, on Good Friday, and the following day is a Saturday. So that's when the Sabbath would be. But for them, the Sabbath begins at sunset on Friday. So as Jesus dies at 3 p.m., it's getting very close to sunset, so they're starting to get close to the Sabbath. This, of course, is one of the key pieces of evidence which tells us that Jesus was crucified on a Friday. John's Gospel is very clear that the next day is the Sabbath, so that means Jesus must have died on a Friday. And to prevent the bodies remaining on the cross during the Sabbath, since that Sabbath was a day of special solemnity, or you can translate this passage, for that Sabbath was a high day. So here we learn that the Sabbath, in this case, is going to be a special feast. And in particular, we know it's part of the Passover week. So the next day, this Saturday, will not only be the normal Sabbath, it's also a special um, Jewish feast associated with the Passover. So it's kind of like an extra special Sabbath feast the next day. So there's three people being crucified there, including Jesus. And the Jewish authorities know it's not going to be appropriate to have the bloody Jewish bodies staying on the cross, particularly dead bodies on the cross after sunset, because Deuteronomy chapter 21 talks about how you need to take the bodies away and bury them before sunset of the Sabbath. So they're trying to follow the Jewish law here. So they're getting worried that it's getting close to the beginning of the Sabbath. The Jews asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken away. So the Jewish leaders want the whole process to be finished quickly. And we say quickly, but in reality, it looks like the crucifixion started at about 9am. Uh, so they have actually already been there for quite a while, and now they're wanting to finish up. At this point, two of the three men are alive. Jesus is dead, but the other two men are still alive. A quick way to speed up the death of a crucifixion victim, it's kind of cruel, but it does work, is they would get a mallet and break the legs of the person hanging on the cross. If you break the legs of the person on the cross, they can no longer hold themselves up and they can't breathe anymore. So they die very quickly after that. So it's one of the Roman ways of killing people on the cross. So the Romans were basically masters of execution and uh, torture, basically. Now, Pilate, if you think about it, doesn't have to comply with their request. They ask Pilate, can we please kill these people quickly? Now, Pilate, in the position he's in, doesn't have to say yes. 
He doesn't care about Jewish laws, but in this case, he chooses to allow it because he has to maintain a fine balance of a relationship with the Jewish leaders. If he continually frustrates them, they might rebel against him. So he has to walk a fine line there. Verse 32, consequently, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with him and then of the other. So those two men are killed by their legs being broken. And if we're understanding Luke's account correctly, one of these men quite possibly uh, ended up in paradise at that moment, or at least possibly passed through purgatory, but he was a righteous man, one of these men. Verse 33, when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. So Jesus, we know, died earlier because uh, John's gospel and the other gospels tell us that he gave up his spirit. Why does Jesus die earlier than the other men? Well, one version could be that Jesus voluntarily gave up his life at a certain point, and you can read the text that way. Jesus chooses the moment of his own death. But it could also just be that he's experienced extensive beatings earlier in the day that the others haven't. So it makes sense that he would die first. Verse 34, instead of breaking his legs, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a lance, or you can translate that spear. So this is a Roman way of confirming if the person is dead on the cross. The idea seems to be that if you pierce someone with a spear in their side and then they react to it or their body convulses, well, then they're still alive. But if their body doesn't convulse, that's a good sign that they're dead. So this is kind of a Roman way of checking or confirming that the person is definitely dead. And immediately there came out blood and water. So this is a very famous passage when the Roman soldier stabs Jesus in the side, blood and water comes out. So firstly, on a biological level, why does this happen? Well, there is actually a medical explanation for this. Normally, if you stab someone, water is not going to come out. It will just be blood. But if someone dies by crucifixion, due to the trauma that the victim has experienced on their heart and their lungs, in terms of the way the person has had to struggle to breathe and struggle to pump the blood around from the heart, then it's a known medical phenomena that in crucifixions and other similar things, fluid can gather around uh, the heart and the lungs. So it looks like, and most uh, scholars and medical researchers who have looked at this have said that when the soldier pierced Jesus, it ruptured his pericardial sac. And as a result, the fluid buildup came out. So blood and water came out of there. So why does John include this? There's a couple of different reasons. Firstly, John wants to stress that Jesus really is dead. At the time Jesus is writing, there's some interesting controversies happening about was Jesus really human? So it seems that one of the things John is doing here is confirming for his readers Jesus really is dead. There's no other way to explain it. The blood and the water came out. That would only happen if you're dead, basically. So this insistence that Jesus is dead highlights that Jesus really is human and he really did die. If you look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, which is written by this same author, you can see that pretty early on in the church, they're already having discussions about, was Jesus really human? So John here is contributing to this discussion and in fact clarifying that Jesus really is human by talking about what happened here at the moment the spear went through him. And of course, this controversy later shows up in the form of Gnosticism. So it was around early on, and John, in his writings in particular, has to combat it. So there's a medical explanation, but there's also heaps of theological implications here about the fact that blood and water uh, come out of Jesus' side. There's been about six or seven strong theological interpretations that have been taken from what happens here. There's 
different ways the church has understood the theological significance. In fact, they could all be right. There's lots of different things that the blood and the water symbolizes. So I just want to take you through uh, some different ways the blood and water has been interpreted theologically. So firstly, the fact that Jesus' side is is pierced kind of mirrors how Eve is formed from Adam's side. So Adam's bride is formed from Adam's rib. Well, here, Jesus' bride is formed from his own side. So it's like the same part of the body that the bride is formed from. When Jesus offers his life, blood and water pours out, and that, in a sense, gives birth to the church, which is his bride. This is how Jesus wins a bride for himself, by pouring himself out. And of course, uh, so the blood, you could say, represents uh, the price that Jesus paid to purchase his bride, and the water is the method by which people enter the church. They become part of his bride through baptism. So there's a lot of profound significance between uh, paralleling Adam and the way his bride is formed and the way Jesus' bride is formed on the cross. That's quite amazing, actually, when you see that. Secondly, blood and water, and there's a strong tradition of this, blood and water can represent the sacraments particularly. So the blood is taken to represent the Eucharist and water represents baptism. John has already said quite a bit about these two sacraments in his gospel. So in John chapter 3, he talks to Nicodemus about water baptism. John chapter 6, he talks about blood being associated with Jesus' body and the sacrament of the Eucharist. So now we see the culmination of this blood and water imagery coming together. John has deliberately set up these themes early in the gospel and then focused on this passage here. So, very strong tradition in the church of associating blood and water with Eucharist and baptism. St. John Chrysostom says, It was not accidentally or by chance that these streams came forth, but because the church has been established from both of these. Her members know this, since they have come to birth by water and are nourished by flesh and blood. The mysteries, the sacraments, have their source from there, so that when you approach the awesome chalice, you may come as if you were about to drink from his very side. So it's quite profound words there. Another interesting theological interpretation here is the water in particular is seen to be an image of the Holy Spirit being poured out. Jesus earlier in the Gospel of John, uh, particularly in chapter 7, described living water welling up from within himself. He actually used this language of a special supernatural water that exists within his own being. Well, now that water is being poured out, and we know that that water is the Holy Spirit. Also, this image of blood and water is one of the most famous images of Jesus' sacred heart. So, uh, you've probably seen the icons of the sacred heart of Jesus. The most common picture to represent Jesus' sacred heart is the blood and the water coming out of Jesus' own heart here. So, there's a strong tradition of associating the sacred heart here with what happens. Some church fathers, such as Tertullian, they see the water and the blood as signifying two types of Christian baptism. So, Christian initiation through water, and then blood represents uh, the baptism of death or martyrdom. So, that's an interesting interpretation as well. Some also see here a parallel with the rock that was struck by Moses in the wilderness. You might actually see some artwork like this. So, that famous scene where Moses strikes the rock in the wilderness and water comes out. Um, There's an elaboration of this in the Aramaic rendition of the the Torah. In the Aramaic version of the Torah, the, the text reads slightly differently for that story. It says that when Moses struck the rock, both blood and water gushed forth. 
Um, that's in Numbers chapter 20, verse 11. And we see that in the Palestinian Targum. Apparently, that was a common Aramaic way of reading that passage. So Paul, in his own writings in the New Testament, interprets the rock that Moses struck as a symbol of Christ, from which flows the spiritual drink of the Eucharist and the Spirit. So maybe Jesus being pierced here and producing blood and water is supposed to mirror the rock that was struck by Moses in the wilderness. And also John himself later elaborates on this theme. In 1 John chapter 5, he says, This is the one who came through water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water alone, but by water and blood. So John clearly sees this as very important. So we've reached the end of the text up to verse 34. And as you can see, it's an incredibly rich text theologically, historically. There's so much more we can say about what the church fathers have said about these passages, uh, what contemporary scholars have said, uh, some of the different theories. Uh, and so really, we've just scratched the surface. So if you want to hear the next part of John chapter 19, you can hear that on the Solemnity of the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus in year B. So today is our last episode in the Gospel of John. We've had quite a long streak of the Gospel of John, and that has now come to an end. Hopefully you've enjoyed doing a deep dive into uh, this Gospel. It's, it's quite a difficult Gospel, but hopefully you've appreciated this approach. From here, we're going to start doing uh, a continuous look through the Synoptic Gospels. So moving chronologically through the Synoptic Gospels uh, on weekdays. So that will start tomorrow, and that's when the Mass, uh, the, the lectionary at Mass, start, starts to read through the Synoptic Gospels in that way. So hopefully you'll join us uh, for that tomorrow, and please tell other people about it as we're beginning uh, a new section of study. It's a good time for new people to join and to learn more about the Gospels. So as you would expect, there's a whole stack of catechism paragraphs that refer uh, to what you've heard today, particularly that section at the end about blood and water flowing out. That is seen as having great sacramental significance. So we don't have time to read them all out today. It has already been uh, quite a long episode. But in the episode description, you'll find a list of all of these catechism references that refer to what you've heard today. So you can have a look at those if you're interested. I hope you've learned something new today. Thanks so much for your support of the ministry. Please tell other people about this podcast so that word can continue to spread. We can continue to learn the teachings of the church and the gospels. And so we can learn more about God and his kingdom and to continue to build his kingdom on earth. Please tune in for the next episode.